So good to have each one here this morning, and um, I'm appreciative of all who brave the weather, although certainly we have it much easier than many who've gone before us. I was thinking of the, uh, the labor of the church under the Russians and the Soviets, and those who would assemble in the, uh, the snow covered forest in order to have in order to have time together with their their church family uh, we have it uh, much easier as we think on things upcoming by way of announcements so scripture reading and sharing the church calendar this evening and then next sunday evening uh, looking to the lord's supper uh, beginning a new sunday school series this coming sunday and Uh, Looking forward to that. And then in terms of prayer requests and things to be uh, praying for, um, Liberty Baptist in Eden Prairie, Pastor Rory Martin, his brother actually, one of the few, um, one of the few brothers that I know, both brothers pastoring in Minnesota. So Rory Martin pastors in Eden Prairie and Ryan Martin pastors in Granite Falls. Uh, But we can pray for them. And then I mentioned on Wednesday night, Rochelle's, or no, last Sunday, Rochelle's brother and uh, personal afflictions and troubles, but also he needs, he needs the Lord. So pray for the Lord to uh, bring him to salvation. And I mentioned uh, on Wednesday, uh, Judy's eyes and the injections and how the uh, first injections were uh, not helpful for uh, helping her eyes, and now sh- with new medications, hopefully uh, they will be. So be praying for her this week. She'll be going uh, in and find out if the new uh, medications are working the way that the doctors are hoping. And then continue to pray for the Carlsons uh, who are here. So we'll keep praying for them. Um, other than, than that, uh, our scripture memory um, which is Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, is helpful for reminding us that the Lord should be our focus. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Focusing on the one who is going to give that ultimate prize. Might we remember, it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Might we seek to serve the Lord, uh, a word which is used also, though not in that context, in terms of worship, might we seek to serve the Lord well even this morning, and we'll ask the Lord to help us in that way, uh, even in prayer. Let us bow uh, before the Lord this time. Lord, week by week we rejoice to gather knowing for whom we gather, not for one another, ultimately, 
not for ourselves ultimately, but ultimately for your glory, your worship, and your praise. And as we consider who you are, we recognize the permanence of your character, the permanence of your being, even the fact that you have existence in and of yourself. We derive our existence from you, who alone are self-existent. And so, Lord, because of who you are, we desire to give you praise. We are ill-equipped, and yet in Christ we are made adequate to praise and honor and worship you. We are small and lowly, yet in Christ we are brought into the high heavenly places. I pray, Lord, that you might rejoice our hearts in these truths. The gospel has transformed and changed us, not only in our actions, but also in our character, in our nature. And we thank you. We stand both appreciative and desirous to give you praise for all that you have done. I pray, Lord, that you would help those in need, even those whom those whom are who are loved by ones whom we pray for. We think of Rochelle's brother and ask that you might work in his circumstances and in his heart, especially. Encourage him to see the greatness of Christ and the goodness of the gospel, even through Rochelle. Change and work in his life. Thank you, Lord, that you care for us physically uh, from the womb to eternity's door. You are sustaining us and keeping us. Pray that you might even uh, do that now for the little one in Tabitha's womb and bless and be kind and good health in a soon delivery. We pray your will might be to be kind in that way. We pray, Lord, that you would be kind in all manner of ailments that we have. We think especially of uh, Judy and pray that uh, even through the marvel of the universe which you have intricately put together and thus doctors being able to use medicine which scientists have composed recognizing the way in which you have created your world or even because of those good gifts uh, might you be kind in helping Judy that her eyesight would would not diminish more 
and that she would be helped by her, her current medications. Lord, we stub our toes, we smash our fingers with a hammer, we close the door on our hands and we very immediately and with exclamation recognize our pain and our hurt. Lord, how much more we need you spiritually and yet sometimes we are dull and slow to recognize our need. I pray that you would grow that need in us even this day. You are the all-glorious great physician. Might you work in our hearts even through this worship service. And we would ask you to do these things, mindful of the fact that you are simultaneously doing these things in the lives of others. I think of the church in Eden Prairie and ask that you might bless them this day. Bless us all and bless us each one, for we need your blessing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we are mindful to look to the word of our Lord, let us read together the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As we focus in praise of our triune God, I invite you to turn to the, in the blue hymnal to the Psalter, Psalm 117a, Psalm 117a, the back of the blue hymnal. And I invite you to stand as you're able. We'll sing together Psalm 117a.
then back almost to the beginning, Psalm, uh, hymn number 18. Hymn number 18, Thou the God who changes never. Thou the God who changes never. Scripture reading is taken from Ephesians and the fourth chapter. Again, thinking on the Trinity, Ephesians 4, beginning in that first verse. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Let's pray together. Father, the blessings with which you have blessed us, 
through salvation and through our union with Christ are so many. But I thank you especially for this one that you have given us as brothers and sisters in Christ a unity in our position in Christ together that the world can't understand and that we ourselves cannot fully understand. Thank you for uniting your children into one body in Christ. I pray that you would help us to reflect that unity, Lord, amongst each other and to the watching world around us, that both we and they would marvel in an age of disunity and in an age of anger and hatred and fractiousness, Lord, that we and they would marvel together at the unity with which you have given us in Christ. Help us to achieve that lofty goal and ideal of reflecting the real underlying unity that you've given us and of not denying it in the way that we act towards one another and amongst each other. Thank you for this gift. Help us to be good stewards of it and help us to be grateful for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You should have received with the bulletin handout, Holy God, we praise thy name. And as you're able, I'll invite you to stand yet again. Holy God, we praise the name. The last verse, let us sing a cappella. Last verse, a cappella. Holy God, we praise the name.
come, let us rejoice that we can sing praise to our Lord. Let us bow. Lord, bending the knee is but a small show of the submission which you deserve. Lifting our voices is but a small raising of praise to the praise you deserve. Thank you, Lord, that we can submit our ways, our words, our music to you. And I pray that submitting them to you, the joy of our worship might be heard by you in truth and in spirit. Might you get the glory, for you alone are worthy of triune glory. Might you bless now, as only you can, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
in the gray hymnal, hymn number 273. And I invite you as you're able, stand, hymn number 273. Yes, I believe in him who is almighty Father God. Might we sing together? Trinity, thanks and praise to thee. And you may be seated as we sing this fourth, uh, fourth hymn, hymn number four, Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity. 
Thanks and praise to thee. take up the word this morning. We're beginning, continuing our <clears throat> beginning of our venture into First Timothy. And so I invite you to turn to the first chapter of First Timothy. First Timothy and chapter number one. And I think we'll see with clear eyes that the truth of the gospel, the truth which Paul proclaims, the truth which Paul implores and commands Timothy to defend, that the truth of Paul's teaching is important There is true doctrine and false doctrine, and this true doctrine, Paul wants to be defended against false doctrine. And so I'll read for us these first seven verses. Uh, We'll continue on later, but for for the moment, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. 
There is true doctrine, and there is strange doctrine. And Paul wants Timothy to make clear the falsehood of that strange doctrine. Years ago, a man of uh, Lutheran convictions, Francis Pieper, wrote of the importance of distinguishing the true and the false. And I think that he showed its importance well, and so I uh, thought to read for you a small portion of what he wrote. If the truth is important in doctrine, then true doctrine is important in churches. This is uh, a portion of what he wrote. Congregations and church bodies must be divided into two classes according to their doctrine. It is God's will and command that in his church, his word be preached and believed in purity and truth without adulteration. In God's church, nobody should utter his own, but only God's word, 1 Peter 4.11. Chaff and wheat do not belong together. All teaching otherwise, strange teaching, is strictly forbidden. 1 Timothy 1.3, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other Doctrine. It is important to point out again and again that in all scripture there is not a single text permitting a teacher to deviate from the word of God or granting a child of God license to fraternize with a teacher who deviates from the word of God. The distinction between orthodox and heterodox bodies and congregations is based on this divine order, that is, this divine command. A congregation or church body which abides by God's order, in which, therefore, God's word is taught in its purity and the sacraments, you can hear his Lutheran vintage there, uh, think of ordinances in the Baptist tradition, the sacraments administered according to the divine institution, divine command, is properly called an Orthodox Church. But a congregation or church body which, in spite of the divine order, tolerates false doctrine in its midst is properly called a heterodox church. All children of God should be earnestly concerned to see how real and serious this difference between church bodies is. Because indifference as to the Christian doctrine, is rampant today among professed Christians. Pieper wrote that more than 50 years ago. And if indifference as to true doctrine, if indifference was rampant in his day, how much the more in ours? According to the command of God, Paul is an apostle, 
according to the command of Paul, Timothy is instructed to go forth and oppose false teaching. Might we be those who understand the importance of the truth which Paul teaches. Might we ask the Lord to help us to this end even this morning. Let us bow our hearts and our heads before the Lord. Lord, we do not have kneeling rails, but we desire to be obedient, to submit to your commands. If the commands of governments and parents are important, then how much the more your perfect commands, your good law. And Lord, I pray that in seeing the importance of true teaching, we might, even as Paul is encouraging Timothy, be warned against false teaching. Help us, Lord, to this end. We sometimes desire our ears to be tickled. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in the rhetoric of man, that we should admire the inventions of man's thinking and man's ideas. Help us, even as Timothy is instructed, to love the purity of your truth. We pray this because we want to obey you. In Christ's name, amen. As we think about that which is true by way of doctrine, you might think on possibly some time in your life when you opposed those in authority. Maybe it was with your parents. Did you ever have the audacity to tell your parents that you might be able to do something they were doing better than they could? We are prone to oppose that which is true and good. And it's uh, interesting here that Paul is encouraging Timothy to confront those who are opposing God, but they're not just opposing God and God's will, God's command. They're also opposing, and get this, they're opposing the command and teaching that Paul is giving. Now, if we think that it's, it's folly to, to, to call the bluff or to uh, raise up our voice against our parents, 
How much the more is it folly for some church leader or church member to point out the error in Paul, the Apostle Paul's teaching? And yet this is exactly what we have Timothy uh, told to defend against. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Paul is an apostle by the commandment of God, verse 1. He's teaching the truth which he has been given from the Lord. He's passing it along to the churches. And as he had taught in Ephesus for years, so they were obligated by God to obey the teaching of Paul. And yet, Paul, the great Paul, his teaching is opposed. Might we not think it unlikely that the truth on our lips would be any less opposed? And yet, might we, like Paul, Encourage steadfast and zealous promotion of the truth. While it is possible, and this I find especially in verses 6 and 7, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they don't understand. And they're saying things uh, with confident assertion even though they don't understand it. Though it's possible uh, to so uh, prioritize the important and life-changing teachings of Scripture that we gloss over significant details... Paul is doing something else here. Paul is not pointing to the details and saying, you've missed those, you false teachers in Ephesus. Paul is rather pointing to the main point and saying, you can't go about in the minutiae with any faithfulness to the Lord if you're going to try to uh, look to the details in ignorance of that which is preeminent. Here, Paul is warning against the central teaching of the gospel being obscured by the minutiae of Scripture. What minutiae of Scripture? Well, it's mentioned by, uh, by uh, Paul in verse number four as myths and endless genealogies. It's mentioned then again as uh, something that they, the false teachers were doing as teachers of the law. And then Paul goes into an excursus, as it were, or an aside, a, a, a side explanation in verses 8 to 11, to which we'll, we'll come in short order. Um, he goes into an excursus on how that the law is good, but the law can be ignored and misconstrued. And so Paul is, is seeking, as the apostle, as the one who is a delegate from the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is seeking to, to encourage Timothy, refocus the, the teaching 
and the understanding of the people and the congregation there in Ephesus, refocus it on the gospel. Refocus it on that which grows from faith. That which is centered on, as verse 11 says, the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul was commanded, take forth this glorious gospel of the only blessed God. Focus on the main point. Do not lose sight of the main point. And so through all of these verses, verses 1 through 11, especially verses 3 through 11, to which we'll, we'll turn. In all of these verses, verses, we see that the truth of Paul's teaching is important. And the question I would like to ask is why? The truth of Paul's teaching is important. Paul sets Timothy to defend it. The truth of Paul's teaching is important. So then the obvious question is, why? Why is the truth of Paul's teaching Important. And I would answer in four ways. The truth of Paul's teaching is important because salvation becomes through the gospel, because love grows in genuine obedience to the gospel, because, thirdly, falsehoods fuel pride and empty speech, and fourthly, because the Old Testament law is good is good. First, the truth of Paul's teaching is important because salvation comes through the gospel. Verse number three implies that the context here is the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. And so the church in Ephesus is to be admonished by Timothy to, toward true teaching. I, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia and whether Paul had been in Ephesus and then he goes to Macedonia or whether he was not in Ephesus, Ephesus and they split uh, paths and, and Paul sends Timothy along to Ephesus isn't the main point or clear in the text uh, with certainty. But Timothy is supposed to Go to remain in uh, Ephesus. Timothy is to be in Ephesus. And what is he to do? He's to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Not to teach error and falsehood. The fact that um, Timothy is left to remain on at Ephesus for the benefit of uh, of Ephesus isn't the benefit of the the the, uh, the, uh, the the city of Ephesus at large, per se, as will be clear throughout the remainder of th- this letter. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy might be particularly of benefit to who? To the people in the church at Ephesus. The people in the church in Ephesus need to know the true doctrine which Paul is proclaiming. And this doctrine 
is that which is different than, verse number four, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. This language here is not not unique to to, uh, Paul here. But as Paul used this, uses this language of myths, he's, uh, he's frequently using this language in terms of Jewish myths, myths concerning the law. And so it's probably in a Jewish context that these false teachers are, are teaching, these, these apparently leaders in the church, teaching Myths and endless genealogies. Endless genealogies is interestingly not used. Uh, well, it's interesting if you're interested in the context of, of Timothy, First Timothy. But uh, it's not used. Some some will propose that uh, the background of First Timothy is some uh, beginning of a kind of Gnostic heresy. And he does. Paul does mention knowledge later on. Gnosis, Gnostic knowledge. Um, but uh, this language of genealogies is not used in any of the, the, uh, the secular writings to speak of Gnosticism. So that, that obviously would be a later date, the Gnosticism. Um, but even thinking of something earlier in Paul's day, uh, genealogies probably is related to, we, we don't know for certain, but it's probably related to some kind of things that either the rabbis were teaching and are written in the, the commentary on the Old Testament, or it's related to the, the Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, ways of misconstruing the importance of their heritage. But in any case, the point is that this error arises in the context of Judaism. Now, our, uh, the errors that we typically uh, come across don't grow out of a Jewish context, right? They, they, those aren't the, the, the context that uh, the errors that we encounter grow out of. However, the, uh, the solution to this problem is a solution that can help us no matter what context error grows out of and we see it in. Note the end of verse 4. Uh, don't pay attention to, uh, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, um, pursuit, and, and seeking. It, it's as though there's, there's an endless, uh, endless uh, going after the, the imaginary. Don't uh, pursue that which gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And here I think again, as we'll see in the future, as Paul has previously uh, mentioned, the importance of uh, those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus who is our hope, who look to God, our Savior. I think as uh, Paul has mentioned Timothy as my true child in the faith, and now he men- mentions the administration of God, which is by faith. I think Paul is pointing us to the gospel. The implications of the gospel can help us to understand the errors of Jewish false teaching. The implications of the gospel can help us to 
understand the errors of modern day secular false teaching. So I think that Paul's focus on God's message, God's plan, and uh, this this language of God, the administration of God, uh, harks to the idea of stewardship. So it ties again to this overarching idea of the command, which Paul has given to Timothy to go forth as a messenger of God. So I think that if we're understanding what Paul is is saying here, Paul is tying the solution to the falsehood. Paul is tying that solution to the gospel. That is the message from God. I think the fact that it uh, operates and is accepted by faith, which operates by faith, this language of the end of verse 4 is, is again, uh, indication that the salvation that, that comes through the gospel you know, points to the importance of Paul's teaching. Salvation comes through the gospel. Since Paul's teaching is focused on the gospel, therefore, Paul's teaching is important. Secondly, Why is the truth of Paul's teaching important? Because love grows in genuine obedience to the gospel. Now, faith and love, Paul will with frequency tie together, not only in the pastoral epistles, not only in 1 Timothy, but in the rest of his letters. But here we see it clearly. But the goal of our instruction and this, this uh, language here is the language of, can you guess? Without looking in your, uh, in your inner column. The, the goal of our commandment. So this, this idea of command, Paul is, is, is tying together this whole chapter from, the, from verse 1 all the way to verse 11. This idea of command. There is an obligation. If we are those who have accepted the plan of God, which operates by faith, if we are those who have embraced the gospel, then for those who are are, uh, true to that faith, true to that gospel, love grows in genuine obedience to that gospel. Love grows in genuine obedience to that gospel. The goal of our instruction is love. The goal of the commandment which Paul is giving to Timothy oppose the false teachers, those who would would, uh, extol and lift up false doctrine and strange doctrine, other uh, teaching. The goal of our commandment is love. This love is not left unqualified, but rather it is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All of this love is predicated on understanding genuinely, understanding and accepting truly 
the teaching that God gives. Apart from truth, there cannot be the true growth of love. Apart from truth, there cannot be the true growth of love. You, you, you would, you, you would uh, infer this even if you go to the love passage in 1 Corinthians. All, all of the attributes of love could be seen as related to service and following God in truth. Understanding the truthfulness of, of that which God re- requires of us and putting it in genuineness uh, into the course of our actions in life. A pure heart, a good conscience. Uh, this, this word speaks to a morally upright, good, morally upright conscience. And a sincere, that is an unhypocritical faith. The, the truthfulness of our faith is shown in part by how we love, by how we love. It is the practical outworking of faith in Christ. Love is. Love is the practical outworking of faith in Christ. And here I'm quoting a commentator, Kostenberger, who, who writes well on, on this epistle, this letter. And we could think also of the fact that love must be sincere and genuine. This, this triad of words points to sincerity and genuineness. So love grows in genuine, uh, not, not, uh, not a facade, not hypocritical obedience, but genuine obedience to the gospel. Thirdly, why... Why should uh, Paul's teaching and the truth of it be seen as important? Uh, Thirdly, because falsehoods fuel pride and empty speech. Falsehoods fuel pride and empty speech. You see this idea of pride in verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law. They're, they're seeking to put themselves forward as those who would be authorities in understanding the law. You see, uh, you see the empty speech being fueled in these, by these falsehoods with the language of empty speech, the end of uh, verse 6. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. This, this is that which is empty, empty talk, empty speech is a, another good translation of this, this peculiar word. Here is Paul, and he is encouraging uh, those who would walk away from Paul's teaching, his teaching. He's encouraging them by encouraging Timothy Remember that pride and empty speech are the result of these falsehoods. And 
if we if we consider that which is empty, I think we 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 rightly infer as as uh, Solomon makes clear in Ecclesiastes that that which is empty is vanity. That which is vanity is nothingness. And so, if we put our confidence in that which is false. We will, empty, we will end up having a confidence that amounts to nothing. Confidence in something that will not last. Confidence in that which is empty, empty is ill-placed confidence. And Paul wants us to place our confidence in the truthfulness of his teaching, in the centrality of the gospel. This then leads... Two, Paul's rebuttal of uh, those who would seek to be uh, teachers of the law, but would not understand the law. And so I think verses 8 through 11 could help us to understand that the Old Testament law is good. Now, Paul uses this word good again, but it's a different uh, word for good than he uses earlier. This word for good uh, doesn't especially point toward the moral purity and the moral uprightness, goodness of something, uh, like good deeds, morally upright. This word for good, rather, points to that which is beautiful. Or or I like to, to use this word for good in terms of the word attractive. The, the Old Testament law, even, has an attractiveness to it. Rightly understood. Rightly applied. So, so if, if you are a Jew and you're seeking, as God has ordered in temple worship, to be faithful to this covenant that God has put you under, the Old Testament law is good. But verse Seven, or verse eight, excuse me, uh, makes it clear that those who are the false teachers and are perverting the truth, they they don't understand what is happening in the law, and so they're using it for all kinds of purposes apart from which it is intended. Probably that's exactly the point of them using uh, these purposes, uh, the law for purposes of understanding myths and genealogies. Myths and genealogies aren't the main point of law. They probably aren't even a minor point of the law. But in misconstruing the law, uh, the, the false teachers have promoted that which is not good. However, the Old Testament law is good. Verse number eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it Properly, according to its intentions. I thought of an illustration here. If you take grandma's apple pie recipe and you try with it to fix the transmission, uh, I don't know what would happen. <laughs> but the point is that the transmission wouldn't get fixed. Grandma's apple pie recipe might be very good. 
but it's not going to help you in fixing the transmission. In our house, Elaine and I will sometimes tell the kids to, quote, stop fooling. Stop fooling. By which mean we mean usually one of two things. Stop being rowdy and boisterous in your actions and volume of your speech. Or stop egging one of the others on or egging each other on in some rowdiness. Stop fooling. But if, if you're driving your, your, your manual transmission car down the road and then you forget to use the clutch and you push the brake and you stall the car, it does no good to tell the car, stop fooling. No good at all. The the law is only useful when used for its intentions, for the purposes with which God established it. Which is unlike the perversions of the law that I I think the point that that Paul is trying to go after is that it's unlike the perversions of the law that the the false teachers and, and wrong teachers are looking to. The law is good if one uses the law for you. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law isn't made for righteous persons, those made righteous in Christ, those who find their hope, is that verse number two? No, number one. Those who find their hope in Christ. The law, rather, is made for, and he, he does, uh, he does a, a section of generic, uh, generic uh, uses of the law, that the, that which they're not made for, not made for a righteous person, but rather generically it's made for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And this especially focuses on uh, the fifth commandment through the ninth commandment. But then, note, I think I don't, oh, I do, uh, then note that Paul goes into detail after he says for the unholy and profane in verse 9. Then he details particular uh, necessities for which the law was given. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, and literally it's those who strike to, to use your body to, to bodily harm your, your parents. Literally your father and so by extension to murder your father those who kill their fathers or uh, mothers um, this you might think of the fifth commandment this is interesting if you follow along obey your father and mother don't don't strike them don't kill them for murderers thou shalt not murder the sixth commandment And 
immoral men and homosexuals. The tenth command, uh, the uh, verse ten, the seventh commandment. Immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers, literally those who uh, those who are dealing the slave trade, those who are kidnapping apparently for the for the benefit that it can uh, accrue to themselves. That would be the eighth commandment. And for liars and perjurers, that would be the ninth commandment. So even the good law promotes good behavior. Second thing that was really interesting as we I thought about the goodness of the Old Testament law as compared to all of the sins and hardships and problems that Paul lists out in other places was something I did not know before uh, studying here. So in all of the uh, cases where Paul has a vice list, and that's that's what this uh, this language of listing different sins is usually called a list of vices, so then it's a vice list. In all of Paul's uh, other vice lists, and he has numerous ones of them, I'll just read for you four of them. They're either one or two or three verses long. They're not long. But see how many overlaps of vices you can find. How many specific vices that are mentioned the same from list to list. Okay, here's Romans 1 and verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, now listen for any repeats. This is 1 Corinthians 5.11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunker or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Continue listening for repeats. First Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here's the list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, uh, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Last Vice list, Galatians 5 and verse 19. Have you heard any overlaps? Have you heard any identical yet? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, despite any, uh, any inclinations of the English translation to incline you to think that there's any overlap, what's interesting is 
the, identi- the particular specific words that Paul uses in Greek, all of those lists are different totally. There's no, uh, there's no repeated sin on those lists. Now, when we come to the end of Paul's life and the end of Paul's writing, we finally get to a few repeats. For example, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 2 and following, he lists those who are boastful and arrogant and disobedient and unloving, which is the same things that he has listed in Romans 1.29 and following. But Paul goes through all of this writing before 1 Timothy and in all of these vice lists before 1 Timothy, there's not one sin that's identical to another sin in another vice list. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are so wholly given over to sin that we can invent all manner of sins against our God. And apart from the, the gospel and trusting in the God who has given us salvation through Christ. Apart from that, we have no hope of conquering our sins. They multiply. They metastasize. All kinds of permutations. What's the language that they're using with the virus now? Mutations, yeah, mutations. All, all kinds of, of, of mutations. This is not like Paul's message. Paul's message comes and cuts off the root of sin at the base. At the trunk. So that the gospel, the truthfulness of that which Paul is proclaiming, the God who has given us Christ and thus the gospel, gets the glory. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, that is healthy teaching, all of those things, that's, that's what the, the law was written for. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If the Old Testament law is good, unlike the provision of the law that the false teachers were promoting, I think we can also say that the Old Testament law is good like Paul's message. Paul's message of the gospel in Christ. Might we rejoice knowing that the truth of Paul's message is a firm foundation, a foundation by which we can know righteousness and conquer sin, a foundation which we ought to view as Paul viewed, as Paul encouraged Timothy to view, foundation which is important. Let us defend the truth. Let us promote the godliness which comes from 
the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, the world around us in so many ways cuts down and mocks the truth, laughs at the truth, perverts the truth. Help us, Lord, rightly understanding your word and the gospel to promote the truth that we find in it to rejoice in the salvation you give through Christ. If Timothy must be on guard after Paul has so authoritatively taught the people of the church of Ephesus, surely, Lord, we must be on guard. Help us to seek to defend the truth. Lord, our actions grow out of the truth, our faith in the gospel, and so we pray. Help us to trust you wholly and help our lives to be thus transformed. We pray this because of our Savior. Amen. Let us conclude in song. Let us look to our God even in song. If you take the blue hymnals, turn with me to number 729. 729, give ear unto God's holy word. 729, would you stand as we sing in closing? Give ear unto God's holy word.
Might you go forth rejoicing in our God's truth. And God bless as you do that. You are dismissed.